Young, wealthy, uh, powerful, the rich young ruler seemed to have everything going for him. So why does he leave his encounter with Jesus filled with sadness and grief? Poor, destitute, and blind, this unnamed beggar seemed to be missing everything in life. So why does his encounter with Jesus result in joy and glory to God? Entering the upside-down kingdom of Jesus isn't always what we think it is. Now, we're going to read in Luke 18 as we talk about what does it mean for us to enter the kingdom. Luke 18, 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he asked him, one thing you still lack, or he, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Verse 31, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is God's word. So there are three stories here, three passages that we're going to talk about uh, linearly. First one is the story of the rich young ruler. Uh, we're going to talk then about uh, the accomplishment of the king. And then the third is uh, we're going to end with the story of the blind receiving sight. So first, uh, the rich young ruler. Now, what links 
chapter 18, all of Luke together, is this theme of entering the kingdom of God. What does it mean to, to enter the kingdom? What exactly is this kingdom that you're entering? And uh, in this, these verses, uh, there's some synonyms that he talks about. Like, what is, it, what is the kingdom of God? Well, he says, what it means to enter the kingdom of God is what it means to be saved. It's the same question that the rich ruler asks. He says, how can I inherit eternal life? And so we see all of these things as descriptions of what it means to enter the kingdom of God. Entering the kingdom of God is what it means to be saved, is what it means to uh, inherit eternal life. But it's interesting because the rich ruler, he, he asks and is thinking about salvation in the future. What, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Thinking about, well, when I die, how can I go to heaven? How can I go on and be, which is right a good question. I mean, hopefully when we die, we think that there's eternal life we would like to go to be with God. But Jesus reframes and he says, Entering the kingdom, it's not just about a future salvation that we're hoping for later on. He says entering the kingdom of God is entering into a life here and now, right? It's experiencing eternal life, and eternal life isn't just a life that goes on forever. It's a type, a quality of life that we begin to experience now as we live underneath the reign of King Jesus. And so he, he says enter into this eternal life, this, this kingdom that I have come to bring and so what, it, what is it? How do we do it? Well, the first thing that we learn from this passage is that entering the kingdom is not based on your status. Entering the kingdom of God is not based on your status. Now, think, you've just started a movement. You're gathering followers. What's the kind of person you're after, right? Who do you want to join your movement? I mean, right? I mean, hopefully you're like, man, the, somebody that's young would be good because they maybe have some sway with that generation. You know, you get the youth involved and you can start growing things a little bit more. I mean, it wouldn't be a bad thing to have somebody that's wealthy, right? I mean, they've got some dough in the, in the bank that they can kind of toss towards things. You got projects, you got dreams. Like, hey, it's nice to have somebody that can fund some of that stuff. Well, a ruler, I mean, hey, now even better. You've got somebody that has some sway, not just with his younger generation, but overall, he's got some kind of, you know, push, some kind of uh, authority behind him. You know, he can maybe get some stuff done civically. Now, you pair this with this rich young ruler was likely pretty religious. He's probably a ruler of a synagogue. You pair all these things together, most rabbis of the day, you know, and, and most people starting movements like, come on board, you know, like, we're excited to have you. But yet, you see, that's not how Jesus approaches him. And it's, I think it's very telling for us, too, how Jesus approaches him. He doesn't look at the outward. Jesus isn't swayed or impressed because someone's famous or they've got authority or they've got money. That should humble us. It should make us come realizing that we don't come to God with anything that we have or who we are or what we've done. We see this in 1 Samuel 16, 7. It says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks on the heart. It humbles us. Next thing we see about entering the kingdom is that it changes what you believe. It changes what you believe. It's not a matter of what you can do. It changes how you see yourself. So, right, the, the rich young ruler, he approaches Jesus, and it's interesting because he's been listening. So, starting in the beginning of chapter 18, Jesus starts telling him these parables about what it means to enter the kingdom. He says that it's like a widow, right, begging out for justice. So, entering the kingdom, is this, it, it happens with this earnest prayer. 
So he uses a widow. Then he talks about that there's a tax collector and there's a Pharisee, you know? And then it's the tax collector who is broken, humbled, saying, I can't even look up at God. Be merciful to me. It's this humble brokenness. And then he, he talks about children, right? So children were, you know, you disassociated. They weren't necessarily the most powerful. And children are being brought to Jesus. He says, you want to enter the kingdom of God? You need to enter like a child. And so this rich young ruler is hearing all of these stories, He's on the outside hearing these things, and then he steps up and he says, okay, what, what do I need to do to be saved? You know, and, and it's interesting because he starts out the conversation by calling Jesus good. So he gives Jesus a compliment, and in that day, what he's hoping for is, hey, I give you a compliment, you give me a compliment, right? I say something nice about you, you do something nice for me, you tell me. And it's interesting because Jesus reframes the conversation. He says, he doesn't say, oh, well, thank you for calling me good. I am, in fact, very good. He says, why do you call me good? God alone is good. He starts to reframe what this man's understanding of goodness is. And he says, you want to inherit eternal life? You want to enter the kingdom of God? Obey the commands. I mean, literally, he is softball pitching, right? He's throwing it up nice and easy for this guy just to hit it out of the park. I mean, for a synagogue ruler, he's like, you know, and he starts listing some of the commands. And all these commands are are social interactions. Don't steal from somebody. You know, don't commit adultery. And so he's thinking, he's like, well, yeah, I've, I've done these since my youth. Why is Jesus softballing? Because he, he says there's, there's something you're not seeing in yourself. There's something that you're blind to, and I want to help you to see it. And he says, okay, one thing you lack. One thing you lack, sell everything you have. And give it to the poor and come and follow me. Why does he say that? He says, you... You think that you're morally upright. You think that you're good. You think that you're following all the commandments. But what about the first one? What about loving the Lord your God and not having other, any other gods besides him? And so he, he starts to show this man this inner poverty that he has. He's revealing that there's a, there's a monster inside that you're not seeing. You're deceived about your own goodness. You think that you're okay, but you're not. And he's, he's revealing this. And not only that, He's revealing that to him in order that he might see that there's nothing that he can do to enter the kingdom of God, right? There's, there's, if you realize, begin to understand your inner poverty, this inward brokenness that's in there, you begin to realize that I can't on my own close this gap, right? It it helps you realize that you can't save yourself. You can't fix yourself. There's not enough things that you can do in your life that are gonna make you all right. There's an inner depravity and inner brokenness inside of you that has to be fixed, that only happens from this realization of your brokenness. And especially for this rich young ruler, you see, the thing that was blinding him was wealth. And it's such a dangerous thing. I mean, it's so self-deceptive. You very rarely, and I very rarely heard someone come to me and say, you know what my problem is, Trevor? I spend too much money on myself. That's just, I just, I'm struggling with spending too much money on myself, right? Most of us are blind to our greed. We're blind to our selfishness that we use too much on ourselves. Why? Because we're constantly comparing ourselves to everybody else in our social class. Oh, listen, I'm not bad as them. You know how much money they spent? Or do you know what they went and did last week? Or do you know the vacation that they took? And so we're constantly finding people that are maybe a little step above us to compare ourselves to. Therefore, it makes us feel better about how much money we spend on ourselves. And wealth is so insidious. It's so deceptive that we don't see it in ourselves. 
You know, I mean, nobody has to question, like, if you've committed adultery. Well, I woke up in the bed, and clearly there's someone next to me, you know? Or if you murdered, there's a body. Uh, but but yet, yet greed, yet selfishness, it, it hides itself from us. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see, this man is using money in place of God. He thinks that what's going to give him control, satisfaction, fulfillment in his life is having enough money. Because, you see, money can do all these things. And money can just, just, is very easy because you can, you can have all kinds of different appearances with love of money, right? There's some people that use money because they want control over their lives, and so they're not going to spend a dime because they think that having all this money in there gives them this sense of control. I finally have control because my bank account is large enough that any emergency, anything that comes my way, I'll be okay. And so you see, money becomes their God, the one that they run to if there's an emergency. It's what comforts them, right? You see, other people, they use it for status, you know, and they'll spend whatever it is because they're looking to impress certain individuals because what is their real God? It's what everybody thinks of them. And so money becomes this tool that people use to, to serve rather than God. And it's this cancer. It, it inwardly eats you up inside. So it, it changes Jesus. The kingdom of God, it changes your belief. It changes your belief about your own goodness begins to unpack your own inward depravity. Unless you understand that, you can't enter into the kingdom, your brokenness inside. And it also, it changes your belief about how you can be saved. You finally come to the realization that you can't fix yourself, that you can't actually save yourself, that you need a savior. Another thing that it changes the belief on is what it means to live the blessed life or a good life. Right? Common belief both then and now is that prosperity, uh, wealth, health, powerful, you know, all these things, they were signs of God's blessing, right? That your material wealth, your status that reflected God's blessing and that you were a good person and you had done good things, therefore God has honored you, right? I've succeeded and worked hard and therefore God saw all of that and he chose to bless me with these things. You see, God's kingdom is seen more in who you love than in what you have. You want God's kingdom? The first thing you need to see is that the true wealth is not what the material blessings you have, but it's in the eternal blessings that God has given you through his son. And he says, this is what you lack. He tells a rich young ruler that you're actually blind to your inner poverty. You think you have all of this, but you, you're actually inwardly poor. You need to see that what you really need are treasures in heaven that that is far more valuable, that what is more precious is Christ, that he is the treasure that we all are desperate to need, that his forgiveness, his grace, his love, his relationship is of untold value, that when you compare the material possessions of this world to the eternal treasure of who Christ is, that it fails in comparison, that you would gladly trade it in order to get it. This so is what we see in Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? 
Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And so we see that the kingdom of God, it, it, it changes what we believe about what it means to live the blessed life. The blessed life is marked more by a love for God and a treasuring of his presence and his relationship than it is about the material possessions that you seem to have at the moment. Another thing that we learn about entering the kingdom of God is that entering the kingdom of God is a personal thing. It is a personal thing. You see, encountering the real Jesus, it changes you. You can't be indifferent when you encounter Jesus, right? There's one of two reactions that you have to Jesus, and you see it. Whenever you read the Gospels, you see there are one of two reactions. Either you are humbled by Jesus, you fall in love with him, you want to follow him, you are grateful to him, you submit to him, or you're grieved, you're angry, you're upset by him. I mean, all the time, right? You see the Pharisees, they encounter Jesus, and they leave, most of the time, they leave Jesus angry, frustrated, murderous. And you see, on the other hand, people that encounter Jesus, and they are moved, bent by love and grace, earnestly desiring to follow him because their lives have been changed. What you don't see is you don't see people that are indifferent to Jesus. You don't see people that are like, he's a nice guy. I can do with a little Jesus. You never see that. You never see people that are like, I like a little guilt in my life every once in a while, so I'll come to Jesus on occasion. He gives me a little sense like, ah, I, could, I should be doing better. You don't see that at all. You never see that. And so let me tell you, if you can approach the claims of Christianity and you're indifferent or you think that the claim, Christianity is a little, it's, it's boring or it can be used on occasion, let me tell you, you've not really encountered the true Jesus of the Bible. Because to encounter the true Jesus of the Bible, he is wild and untamed, and he beckons and demands reaction to him. And it will be marked either by following him in glad submission or in rebelling against him because you've chosen your own kingdom rather than his. There is no in-between. Not only this, but, but Jesus loves you enough to get up in your business right? Jesus loves you enough to get up in your grill. This account is told in three different gospels, right? And in the gospel of Mark, it says that Jesus looks at this rich young ruler. It says it looks at him. He looked at him and he loved him. He looks at this rich young ruler and he loves him. And he tells him, one thing you lack, sell everything, give it to the poor and follow me. Right? It's, it's not like Jesus is like, oh, I'm going to get him this time. Right? I mean, Jesus has a heart of love and compassion for this man. He says, you are, you're deceived. You're holding on to something that is going to ultimately destroy you. You think that it can give you joy and fulfillment and satisfaction, but it is a lie. This wealth, it cannot do that. It can't, it can't fulfill you. And listen, the rich young ruler, he came to Jesus because he thought that he was, you know, maybe going to get a little something that was going to add to his life, right? He thought that, that Jesus was maybe going to, he was missing maybe a doctrine or a thought or an idea or maybe an experience. Like, man, I just, I need a little experience with Jesus, you know? Like, it was like a cherry on the top of his life. Like, all right, I've got my diet down. I got my career down. I got my relationships down. My friendships are going well. I feel like there's a little something missing, though. Maybe I need a little Jesus in my life, you know? I'm going to add Jesus on the top, and then, hey, it's, it's all good. You know, like a little cherry on the top of the Sunday, the final book to close the book and Jesus tells him, you've, you've misunderstood who I am and what I do. I'm not the cherry on the top. I'm not the final book in your bookshelf. 
I tear it all down. It's all down. What I come to offer you is not something to add to your life, but I come to destroy your life and give you a new one. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your talents and money, and so much of your work. I want you, all of you. I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here and a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants and wishes and dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me, and I will make you a new self in my image. Give me yourself, and in exchange, I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. And don't you see, this is what Jesus is doing to the rich young ruler. He's telling him, I want to give you far more than what you ever hoped or dreamed. You see, Jesus, he demands more than we ever wanted to give, but he gives us far more than we ever could have hoped or dreamed for. And he tells them, listen, I want to give you eternal wealth, but you're holding on to something first. You see, in order to receive the gifts that Christ is giving, in order to receive the kingdom that he is offering, you first must let go of your own kingdom. You first must let go of the false idols and gods that you have made that you think are going to bring you satisfaction and comfort and hope. He says, only if you are able to open your hands and let those go will you be able to receive what I have in store for you. And so we see, listen, for you it might look different Jesus approaches us all personally, but wealth is insidious, and I think all of us should probably start with a basis that this is a problem for us, <laughs> right? We should all probably start with that baseline, like, I'm probably selfish and spend too much money on myself, and then go from there. And so what is it that he is saying, let go, open your hands, let me take it, I have something better in store for you. I promise you, Jesus gives far more than he ever takes. It feels like death. Right? This rich young ruler, it felt like death to him. But on the other side of that death, there's new life. And that's what you see from the disciples, right? And it's funny because the crowd is shocked, right? The crowd is like, oh my gosh, like if, if he can't be saved, what are we going to do? You know, like who can be saved? And he says, with God, everything is possible. You can't save yourself, but with God, it is possible. He can, if you just open your life up and say, God, help me. Help me to let this go. He will come in. And so we see the disciples, right? It's not like the disciples didn't struggle because they, at the end of the passage here with the rich young ruler, they say, we did this, Jesus, right? Remember, hey, us over here, we left our homes and our family. And he says, yes, exactly, you did. And in this life and life to come, you're receiving far more than what you ever gave up. And he promises that. Whatever you give up, he will give far more. So we see the rich young ruler. The second thing, the second point we see is the accomplishment of the king, or we might call it the return of the king. See that Jesus now changes his direction, his, where he's going, right? It says that he sets his face towards going up to Jerusalem. And this is the mark of Jesus' final hour, right? Jerusalem is the place where he will be crucified, where he, he will die. And so we 
learn a, a couple things here because he, he tells the disciples, he takes the 12 aside and he tells them, here's what's going to happen, right? I'm going to go, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to torture me, flog me, beat me. They're going to crucify me and I'm going to rise again. And the disciples are like, huh? What, what? You know, I mean, they're completely blind. Like it goes straight over their head. And so a, a couple things that we can take away from this point. First, Jesus does what we can never do. Jesus accomplishes the victory that we can never accomplish, right? This is the heart of the gospel. This is the centerpiece of it, is that this is how we actually enter the kingdom, is through his death and his resurrection, right? That he obeyed the Father perfectly when we have failed. He took the debt that you and I could never pay. He fulfilled it, and he rose again, accomplishing the victory that we couldn't. Now, a couple implications for this. One, this should allow you to rest, when you understand that he has accomplished the victory for you, that you can never be good enough, that it's not measured on your goodness, but rather his, this should bring a deep sense of rest and peace in your life. Because that inner voice that keeps lying to you, saying you're not enough, you need to do this to be good enough, and you need to do this to earn it, you finally realize that God is satisfied in you because not what you've done, but because of what his son has done and your trust in his son. And that should bring a deep sense of rest into your life, but also joy when you realize that what is ahead is far better than what is behind, that what he has accomplished, the victory that he has done is for eternity, it's past, present, and future, that all that you have done has been set on his son, and there is nothing against you. There is no record of wrongs that weighs on you any longer. This should bring joy, right? He tells the disciples, don't rejoice because the demons have, you have power of the demons, but rejoice because your names are written in the book of life. This should bring great joy to us. Second thing that this passage teaches us is that the kingdom of God is most perfectly displayed in Jesus' death and resurrection and the fulfillment of the scriptures, right? The Bible's a big book. There's a lot of pages in it. There's a lot for us to learn about God. But if you want to learn most uh, essentially what God's nature is like, then look at the death and resurrection of Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the perfect display of God's nature and what he is like. That we have a God that loves us enough that he dies for his enemies. That his enemies, the people, the very people that rejected him said, I want nothing to do with you. I'll live life on my own terms. I mean, think about that. Think of, you know, people that have treated you like that. They said, I don't want your advice. I don't care about you. I don't want to do things my own way. They spurn you. They reject you. And then to go and to take on their problems, their debt, to love them. I mean, what God has done for us, it shows us his, his grace, his care, his compassion, his goodness, his relentlessness, right? That he will never let us go. The things that change us most deeply in our lives are the points and the moments when people love us in spite and in the midst of our brokenness, right? The things that have changed my life deepest you know, probably most of the time my wife, when I make dumb decisions and I say not nice things, and in the midst of my stupidity and my foolish decisions, she leans in and says, I love you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm pressing in. Do you understand that that's what Christ is doing? That he leans in, he presses in and says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. This is displayed in the gospel. And our last point, the blind receive sight so Jesus is going, he's going on the road to Jericho, and he uh, is obviously causing a ruckus. Wherever Jesus went, there was drama. People wanted to follow him, people wanted to be around him. And so he's coming around, and there's this blind beggar that hears the ruckus, right? Because he can't see. We don't know how long he's been blind. 
But imagine life being blind, not being able to see. And he hears this, says, what's going on? They tell him, hey, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. Apparently, Jesus' word has gone around because he must have heard something about the guy. He starts screaming, right? He starts making a big fit. Like, son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me, you know? And the people at the front, I mean, he's inexpendable. So in Jesus' day, they had somewhat of a caste system. And the people that were blind, that were beggars, that were on the side of the road, they're like the 5 to 10% of expendables, right? I mean, you kick them to the side, you ignore them. In some ways, they were seen as the curse of God, right? People that were neglected and left out. And he starts hollering. And so you see some people say, get out of here, man. They just want to hear from you. And they start pushing him off. And I just imagine like they're grabbing him, kind of holding him off. And he starts screaming even louder, right? He's like, it like incites him. And he's like, son of David, have mercy on me. And it reaches Jesus's ear. He hears him and he he beckons him. He stops them. And he says, bring him here. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? He says, right, he could have asked a lot of things in that moment. Like, hey, can you give me some money? I'm hungry. Can you give me some food? But instead, he goes big. He says, restore my sight. Can you restore my sight? And he says, your faith has made you well. And he restores his sight. And the man follows Jesus, rejoicing. And everyone gives glory to God. A couple things that we can learn from this. Once again, entering God's kingdom is not dependent on your status. Right? This blind beggar is poor, is outcast, and yet he is the one that is ushered in to Jesus' kingdom. He enters. And it's so ironic, right? The two stories before it, you've got a rich young ruler that seems to have everything going for him, and yet he's blind to his internal poverty. He doesn't see it. You've got Jesus' own disciples, and Jesus is telling them about everything that's going to happen. Yet, like, hey, you've been following me for like two and a half years. Like, I'm about to die, and they just miss it. They're blind to it. And yet you have this person as the outside and the outcast of society, and yet he has this spiritual sight that everyone misses. He sees who Jesus is. He has this, he calls him son of David, right, which is the long-promised Messiah. It's the, it's the king that Israel was waiting for. And he calls out, and he says, come and it's this internal sight, it's this faith that, that heals. And it shows us once again that it doesn't matter what has happened to you, what others have done to you. It doesn't matter where you were born or how much or how little you have. Those don't define your entrance into the kingdom, right? What does? Mercy and faith. Mercy is the cry and faith is the heart that leads to the entrance to the kingdom of God. Mercy is the cry, and faith is the heart that leads to the kingdom. All right? The blind beggar, because of his physical ailment, he knows, I don't deserve any of this. I don't deserve this. And so he just cries out in pure, unadulterated mercy. Have mercy on me, Jesus. I realize that I don't deserve your healing. I don't deserve your relationship. I don't deserve any of this. But have mercy on me. And then he trusts him, right? Out of all the things he asks, he trusts Jesus. That I believe that you can do this. I believe that you can heal me. That you can do what no one else can do. These are what lead us to enter the kingdom of God. Is a, real, a realization that we are broken and that the only thing that allows us access is to receive the free gift of God. And so we cry out to him, God, have mercy on me. I see my inward brokenness. I see my poverty, and I need you. I want eternal wealth. I want what only you can give, and I trust that you and you alone can give it. 
no one else. Mercy is the cry and faith is the heart that leads us to enter the kingdom of God. The God of mercy, be adored, who calls our souls from death, who saves by his redeeming word and a new creating breath. Let us in this moment as we close and pray, be willing to open our hearts and ask the Lord, what is it that maybe I'm holding on to that's hindering me from entering into your kingdom or from fully following you? And let us cry out for his mercy and trust him by faith. Father, we're grateful for these stories and for how they show us who you are, and that you are the God that wants to give, that is generous. Lord, that you have given everything to us, Lord, that you don't ask us to do anything that you haven't done. And so help us, Lord, to realize that you are our treasure and that everything else fails in comparison to you. Convince us of, the, of these things, Holy Spirit. Help our lives to be marked by our faith in it and in you. Let's hear me pray. Amen.